From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. Snow, cold, blackouts, flight cancellations, the latest on Christmas Eve weather. Also Susan Page on the January 6th committee. President Zelensky speaks before Congress. Also, the Taliban closes universities and secondary schools to women in Afghanistan. Zakia Menas is in college here, but she worries for those she loves. It's not like I'm here and I'm safe, that's it. I'm thinking about my family and friends and their suffering. The whole Afghanistan is my family and I'm thinking about them. And families split by a border brought together this holiday. First, our newscast, it's Saturday, December 24, 2022. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. As much of the East Coast shivers following a winter storm that blanketed much of the country, New York Governor Kathy Hochul says her message is simple. This is a life-threatening, dangerous event. Protect yourselves, protect your families, Do not travel until the roads are reopened, that you know it's safe. The storm brought snow and ice that caused a 50-vehicle pileup on the Ohio Turnpike near Toledo yesterday. Thousands of flights have been canceled or delayed this Christmas weekend. Howling winds from the storm making frigid temperatures feel even colder, even in much of the south and Tennessee. Paige Flager of member station WPLN reports utilities are triggering rolling blackouts because of strains on the power grid. The extreme cold has strained the Tennessee Valley Authority's generation facilities, so the power company has asked local utilities to cut their electricity use. That means Nashville customers will experience 10-minute outages every few hours. That will last until the power load stabilizes. The state's grid is not accustomed to weather this cold. Temperatures plunged below zero in Nashville for the first time in decades. For NPR News, I'm Paige Flager in Nashville. Congress has recessed for the holidays after scrambling this week to pass a government spending bill. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the roughly $1.7 trillion measure will keep federal agencies funded through September. After weeks of intense negotiations, Democrats and Republicans were able to put aside their differences and strike a compromise. The bill directs more than $850 billion to defense funding, including about $45 billion in emergency aid to Ukraine. It also provides funding for natural disasters and contains a provision that would ban Chinese-owned social media app TikTok from government-issued devices. Lawmakers hit a snag on Wednesday when Republicans and Democrats introduced competing amendments on immigration. Both proposals ended up failing in the Senate, allowing lawmakers to move forward with the overall package. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Remaining in the nation's capital, President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden visited Children's National Hospital Friday to meet with patients ahead of Christmas. Here's NPR's Osma Khaled. The Bidens thanked nurses and staff at the hospital. They also met with patients and their families. To all you parents in song. We spend a lot of time in Children's Hospital with patients, too. It's going to be okay. The First Lady read a book called The Snowy Day to Pediatric Patients. First Ladies have been making this holiday visit to the hospital for decades, dating back to the Truman presidency. But last year, President Biden accompanied his wife, marking the first time a sitting president joined along. And he kept that new tradition going this year. Asma Khalid, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Nearly 18,000 Massachusetts residents are still without power after a winter storm brought winds, rain, and freezing temperatures to the region. Temperatures rapidly dipped from the 50s into the teens, and winds gusted up to nearly 60 miles per hour. At Logan Airport, the winter weather has delayed nearly 70 flights and canceled over 30 flights today. The number of food deliveries ordered via apps such as DoorDash and Uber Eats doubled in Massachusetts during the pandemic. That's according to researchers from a planning agency for municipalities in the greater Boston area. WBUR's Paula Mora reports that the researchers suggest using environmentally friendly transportation to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The Metropolitan Area Planning Council found that most food order deliveries in Massachusetts involve a trip of about one to five miles. Alison Felix is one of the study leaders. She says this is an opportunity to use more climate-friendly transportation. And really really trying to encourage um, other modes of of travel, such as e-bikes, bikes, scooters, mopeds, even foot. She also recommended that the delivery apps share data with local governments to track their impact on emissions and traffic congestion. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft is rewarding a fan who kept his cool during a confrontation. The fan now has tickets to today's game against the Bengals at Gillette Stadium. Pats fan Jerry Edmonds saw his first NFL game last weekend in Las Vegas, and when the Pats lost, a Raiders fan aggressively rubbed the loss in Edmonds' face. A video of the encounter went viral, garnering millions of views online. Kraft thanked Edmonds for representing the fan base with class. It is 11 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, high around 22. Windchill values as low as three below. WBUR supporters include Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us. There's coastal flooding in parts of New England, blizzard conditions around Buffalo, New York, where officials warned it would be nearly impossible for first responders to operate. And in Chicago, nearly 600 flights canceled at O'Hare International Airport yesterday. We're joined now by Michael Puente, a reporter with member station WBEZ in Chicago. Michael, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What's it like there? Well, Scott, snow is what we're really good at handling here in Chicago, but that's not the issue. In fact, we didn't even get as much as was predicted. It's just really, really cold. I know you're a Chicago guy, Scott, but I think you would even find this pretty cold. It's actually climbed to three degrees right now, but it feels much colder because of that wind chill. We're talking 20 to 30 mile per hour winds that can knock you down or blow you sideways. It also makes you feel like it's minus 35 degrees. You're getting into dangerous territory driving or even walking around for more than a few minutes, especially if you don't have the right gear. And how's the city handling it? It's causing a lot of disruption. Officials have been opening warming shelters. There's some trains here that have been stopped along the Sabo Lakeshore Drive where the wind comes right off the lake 
But, you know, I talked to Rich Guidas. He's the executive director of Chicago's Office of Emergency Management and Communications. And he said the city's been handling things relatively well. He said had things gone as forecasted a few days ago, it could have been much worse. You know, had we had gotten that three to six inches of snow, like I said, with the 50 uh, mile an hour wind gusts and the uh, extreme cold temperatures that we have, uh, we could have had a different scenario. So we'll we'll take this as a win thus far, but by no means should anybody spike the ball just yet. We still have a, a few days to go here. And Michael, how does this compare to the rest of the country? Well, Scott, we may be one of the coldest places right now in the country, but we're certainly not the only one suffering in the wake of the storm. More than a million people were without power on Friday, and roughly 60% of the country was under some kind of advisory. And the travel problems are just as widespread. Nearly 6,000 flights were canceled yesterday. We saw 1,300 more flights were canceled today. This is really an unfortunate confluence of factors. It's a holiday weekend, one of the busiest travel times of the year, and that with staffing issues the airlines have been dealing with. It's the real-life version of that movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which was also about holiday travel involving Chicago. I love that film, but go ahead, yes. Me too. Unfortunately, Scott, this is not a movie, and it's very frustrating for people, not to mention dangerous for those who are dealing with power outages and other serious disruptions. But for people looking for some good news, in Chicago and many other places in the country, it's supposed to start warming up beginning Christmas Day and into next week. And Michael, bear down Chicago Bears. They're playing today despite all this, right, against the Bills. That's right. They're playing the Buffalo Bills. They're they're also no stranger to cold. You know, Scott, usually tickets for Bears games go for like $150 to $200, but you can almost get into this game for free. So, Scott, if you're up for the Bears game today, I'll buy you the ticket and I'll meet you there. I'll bring the family. Michael Puente uh, from Everstation WBEZ in Chicago. Bear down. Thanks very much. Bear down and thank you for having me. The final report of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol dropped this week. More than 800 pages and it recounts a lot of firsthand testimony about an organized effort to overturn the lawful results of the 2020 election. But its recommendations for prosecutions are just that, recommendations. We turn now to Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Susan, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's a privilege to be with you. At the end of the year, an 800-page document with important revelations and recommendations, but will it have any effect with the new Congress um, under Republican control about to be sworn in? Well, the the report by the January 6th panel doesn't do everything. As you point out, the Justice Department can ignore the criminal referrals they made. They recommended that Donald Trump be barred from holding political office again. That's also not likely to happen. And in fact, the committee itself dissolves when the new Congress takes over. But in fact, this report has already done a lot, I think. Remember the assault on the Capitol came just three days after the opening of this 117th Congress, and now it ends with an investigation that uncovered an, an enormous amount of information that we didn't know before about what happened on that day, and importantly, in the weeks leading up to it. Is It is, I think, the most consequential congressional investigation we've seen in generations, Scott. Uh, another question on timing. Uh, yesterday, Congress approved $1.7 trillion federal budget for the current fiscal year. Um, Republicans take control of the House next month. Why didn't they delay until they have more more control over spending? 
Well, that's a that's a question Kevin McCarthy keeps asking the the House Republican leader. His troops definitely wanted to delay into the new Congress, and if that had happened, this bill would not have passed. They would have demanded significant cuts in spending and policy changes, which is precisely why congressional Democrats and the Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell wanted to push it through. They wanted to avoid avoid that sort of uncertainty in the in the new year on this issue. The Republican leaders, McCarthy and McConnell, were at odds. We'll see if that happens again in the new Congress, Scott. Extraordinary visit, of course, this week uh, from Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. Um, certainly seemed to, to give manifest demonstration that he and President Biden are united in their resolve to repel the Russian invasion. But there are differences between the two, aren't there? Yeah, yeah, there are. What an inspiring visit. And they were the they were the picture of solidarity when they were photographed in the Oval Office. But we know that behind closed doors, they do have differences. Zelensky wants some U.S. military systems to wage the war that Biden has refused to provide. And they differ on how this war should end. The White House has encouraged the idea of, of diplomacy. Reaching a deal with Vladimir Putin is likely to involve making compromises because most peace treaties do. Zelensky hasn't endorsed that idea, at least not out loud. You know, as David Ignatius of the Washington Post pointed out, when he was in Washington, Zelensky used the word victory a dozen times. Mm -hmm. Biden never did. You, of course, have um, followed the career of Nancy Pelosi for a while now, and uh, you wrote a book about her that came out last year, Madam Speaker. Uh, this week, she gave her final press conference as speaker. What... Uh, what struck you? What should we recount now? Uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi is usually a, a heat-seeking missile. She is intense and disciplined. She is a woman on a mission. But at this last news conference this week, she seemed more relaxed and at ease than, than I can remember. You know, for two decades, she's been the leader of House Democrats. She's been the best friend that Democratic presidents have had and the face of the opposition to Trump. But Unlike a lot of folks in Washington, she now seems ready to retire, Scott. And um, how, do, how do we recount the significance of her career? She is the most consequential Speaker of the House since Sam Rayburn and one of the most consequential legislative leaders in the history of the United States. Well, that's quite a statement. Uh, Susan Page, who's the Washington Bureau Chief of USA Today. Uh, so good to be with you on this weekend. Thanks very much. Yes, and happy holidays to you. Also to you. Many have compared President Zelensky's address to a joint session of Congress to the appearance Winston Churchill made 81 years ago. But I was reminded of when Churchill addressed the Canadian House of Commons a few days later. He said French generals who urged surrender to Germany had told their government, in three weeks, England will have her neck wrung like a chicken. Some chicken, Winston Churchill told Canada's parliament. Some neck. When Russian forces invaded Ukraine on February 24th, many experts and analysts, including generals, told many news and talk shows that Russian air power and tanks would quickly overwhelm Ukraine. Retired U.S. Army General Barry McCaffrey, among many respected authorities, told MSNBC, Putin is likely to achieve his military objectives, perhaps in under 90 days. It has now been 303 days. There was a Churchillian echo when President Zelensky told this week's joint session of Congress, Ukraine is alive and kicking.
Of course, many of Ukraine's towns and villages have been shattered and burned. Many war crimes have been committed. The Ukrainian government says 13,000 Ukrainian soldiers have died and possibly more than 100,000 Russian soldiers. United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights says almost 7,000 Ukrainian civilians have died. Men, women, and children who were simply going about their lives 10 months ago working, posing no threat to Russia, then Russian forces invaded. Millions of refugees have had to flee Ukraine with just the clothes they wore to walk out of their own country. Much of Ukraine now lives between bombings and blackouts, hunger and cold. But against so many predictions, Ukraine survives. The United States has given at least $50 billion in aid and just authorized more. There are those on both the left and right who worry that U.S. military aid could lead to U.S. military involvement. Ukraine never asked the American soldiers to fight on our land instead of us, President Zelensky reminded the U.S. Congress. Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy. President Zelensky didn't mention that he spoke on the fourth night of Hanukkah. But the world saw a political leader who happens to be Jewish, just back from the front in an olive drab sweatshirt, speaking for his country during a holiday that commemorates those from centuries ago who kept temple lights burning through darkness and despair, night after night after night. listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Ahead on Weekend Edition Saturday, you'll get some cookbook recommendations. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum with Titus Kaffar's Jerome Project, Portraits on Race, Representation, and Mass Incarceration, GardnerMuseum.org. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. Stay informed about a full range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app whenever, wherever. It is 11 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, a high around 22. Wind chill values as low as three below. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The cold snap that has much of the country in its grip this Christmas Eve is being blamed for hundreds of thousands of power outages. Most are on the East Coast, but thousands are without power in Washington State and Texas as well. Thousands of flights have been canceled or delayed. The rapper Tory Lanez is facing more than 20 years in prison. He was found guilty by a jury in Los Angeles in the wounding of fellow hip-hop star Megan Thee Stallion in 2020. And in hockey, the Washington Capitals' Alex Ovechkin has passed Gordie Howe for second on the NHL's all-time goals list. Ovechkin scored two goals last night, bringing his total to 802. Only the legendary Wayne Gretzky has more career goals at 894. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at storyworth.com. And from the NPR Wine Club, bringing wines from around the world to members with NPR-inspired bottles like Weekend Edition Cabernet, available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The Philippines says that there are renewed incursions by China in areas of Philippine-claimed waters in the South China Sea. This week, the U.S. State Department issued a statement in support of the Philippines. The Chinese government has long insisted on its claim to much of the sea and accused the United States of stirring up tensions. And here's Julie McCarthy has been following the story. Julie, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. What's China accused of doing? Well, you know, this is the latest in a, in a series of what the Philippines calls swarming of Chinese fishing boats around reefs and shoals that lie within the Spratly Islands, these tiny, uninhabited, but loaded with geopolitical significance islands. Um, and the Spratlys lie within the Philippines' exclusive economic zone, waters that they can legally claim. And in recent weeks, images have captured Chinese massing their fishing boats around a reef and a shoal within those waters. But analysts say, you know, satellite images show Chinese ships had a constant presence there um, in this very same reef for 12 months up until September 2022, from two to 30 ships, according to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. They say this is one of the smaller deployments, but small or not, the Philippines says China's violating its sovereignty. Why is this smaller swarming different from some of the formal complaints that uh, the Philippine government has made in the past about Chinese aggression in the South China Sea? Well, first, the Philippine Senate got furious and it condemned China and said it had to be stopped. Uh, Senator Francis Tolentino led that debate 10 days ago on the floor of the Senate, and he showed a video that depicts the Chinese Coast Guard in Philippine-claimed waters retrieving rocket debris. A small Philippine rubber patrol dinghy found it, and in the video, the Chinese sailors severed the Philippine tow line, something analysts say is a clear violation of maritime law. Here's what Senator Tolentino said about China's behavior. These actions are slowly but surely eroding Philippine sovereignty and harming the country's strategic position. But perhaps, you know, the biggest difference, Scott, is that the United States entered the fray with a sort of full-throated support of, of the Philippines, saying China should meet its legal obligations under a 2016 ruling at The Hague. Uh, it said... Uh, that tribunal ruled that the Philippines has sovereign rights over its claim to waters and that China's vast claim to the South China Sea is illegal. Beijing has publicly denounced that ruling and refuses to abide by it. And this week, the Chinese embassy in Manila 
said the Americans were bent on driving a wedge between China and the Philippines. So now you have this trilateral controversy at a time when there's all this friction in the U.S.-China relations already. And let's not forget that this is unfolding against the backdrop of all these fraught cross-strait tensions between China and Taiwan, where the region is really getting skittish about the prospect of an armed conflict. And... This occurs just in time for President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. to visit China the first week of January. How does that complicate the issues? I think for, for Marcos Jr., this is a tricky balancing act. He would prefer not to alienate China. And at the same time, he's signaling to the Americans that China is very important to the Philippines, diplomatically, you know, economically. I think we should look for this trip to be a charm offensive. Marcos Jr. is not likely to throw down any gauntlets with Xi Jinping over the South China Sea. It's not in his nature. He doesn't have the kind of sharp edge um, that his more blunt predecessor, Rodrigo Duterte, had, who, who didn't pull punches. But Marcos has got to weigh up, you know, this tremendous pressure back at home. We hear it in the Senate. His defense establishment is increasingly mad at China. Um, the Philippine public registers a distinct distrust of Beijing. And there's an irony here for China. Despite all of this pushback in the Philippines, one analyst told me, China seems incapable of ratcheting down pressure to give the new Philippine government space. And the result is that China may be steadily pushing Marcos Jr. closer to the United mm. States. And for the Americans, they know that aligns perfectly with their strategic argument. And um, they've been trying to advance that both sides over the last year. Let's see what 2023 brings. And Pierce Julie McCarthy, thanks so much. Thank you. A veteran freelance producer for ABC News has been reporting aggressively on politicians in Florida who promote clean energy and clear waters. But ABC says she's not doing those stories for the network. An investigation by NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik and Floodlights Miranda Green and Mario Ariza finds that she was being paid by a consulting firm for some of Florida's biggest polluters. Here's David with the story. On a searing day in July 2018, Kristen Henschel appeared to be doing exactly what you would want a journalist to do, holding the powerful to account, in this case, on Florida's Treasure Coast. Word is spreading fast in Martin County that in a rush to develop the site for the local hospital's expansion of offices, protected gopher tortoise are showing up dead. 20 of them, to be precise. Henschel's news story went viral. She tracked down the consultant charged with protecting wildlife from harm at the construction project. So who is supposed to be paying attention? Meet so Toby Overdorf. Overdorf didn't stand a chance. Overdorf didn't have much to say about the tortoise. <coughs> if anything, he was a little choked up. I don't know where this tip came from. I don't know anything about it. Overdorf says she gave him a card showing she worked for ABC News. More than four years later, Overdorf remembers how very smooth she was. Knew exactly what she was going to be asking me. Never flinched. She reeled me in with some easy questions and then hit me with this. Now, Henschel is a former local TV news reporter, and she had legit been working for ABC's Good Morning America as a freelance producer since February 2016. ABC News wouldn't comment while we were reporting this story, but two people at ABC News with knowledge say Henschel's presence on Florida's Treasure Coast had nothing to do with the network. NPR and Floodlight found Henschel was paid thousands of dollars in that period by a political consulting firm. Invoices from the firm showed it billed two huge clients for her work just weeks later, the sugar conglomerate Florida Crystals and the utility Florida Power and Light. It just goes to the very heart of why people no longer have the same confidence and trust in the news media they once did. 
David Weston was president of ABC News until 2010, and he says the revelation of this episode will only feed public cynicism. They suspect this is going on anyway, and for it to actually go on confirms their worst suspicions. Henschel hasn't responded to our repeated requests for comment. Florida Crystals says it has nothing to do with Henschel. Florida Power & Light didn't comment, and the founder of that consulting firm called Matrix blames rogue employees. We do not know why or for whom Matrix paid Henschel, but why would she care so much about a particular environmental engineer? Let's return to Henschel's story for a moment. He happens to be running for the House District 83 seat. That's right. Overdorf was a conservative Republican running for state legislature. He was also touting tighter water quality regulations and other environmental measures. Florida Crystals and Florida Power and Light were battling related initiatives. Henschel's video segment, as Overdorf notes in an interview, was perfectly crafted to shatter his green credentials as a candidate. I was rocked. Somebody makes this accusation against you, and this is something that once it hits the internet, it, it will stay there. And as a result, it's something that I'm going to have to deal with the rest of my career. Henschel's story didn't run on ABC or local news. It ran on the website and YouTube page of an apparent environmental outfit no one had heard of. By the way, Henschel produced a bunch of videos for that group. Millions of people come here to the Gulf Coast every year because of all of this. But with these great assets come a big responsibility to protect the environment. We have financial documents showing that a shell company set up by Matrix paid the group $55,000. Its online presence was shut down as soon as we started asking questions. The same summer she pursued Overdorf, Henschel pulled a similar move on the mayor of South Miami, an advocate for solar power. Invoices show nonprofits linked to Matrix spent six figures trying to knock him out in other ways, too. And then there's the Florida Congressman Brian Mast. Here's a Facebook video he posted in 2020. A woman broke into our neighborhood, which is gated, came to our home, knocked on our door, presented herself as an ABC News reporter named Kristen Henschel. Henschel wasn't charged with anything. She repeatedly sought to ask him about offensive, years-old social media posts. He gave us a photo of her card bearing the letters ABC News. ABC's political director emailed Mast's aide in 2020 that she wasn't there for the network. Mast believes it has to do with his push for legislation protecting greater water quality, but we don't know. Here's what we do know about Henschel's story on Toby Overdorf. A review by the city of Stewart, Florida, found no evidence any tortoise was found near that construction site, dead or alive. City officials say Kristen Henschel showed no interest in reporting that. After this story first aired, ABC released a statement saying Henschel was, quote, a freelance daily hire who never worked for ABC News on these political stories. And it added, she does not currently work for ABC News. David Folkenflik, NPR News. Portland, Oregon faces one of the most serious homelessness crises in the country. Large numbers of people live in tents on the street or crowd in with relatives. And Bears Katie Riddle reports on how one social service organization there is offering holiday cheer to people without their own homes. It's 30 degrees at dusk. Tents cluster around sidewalks in this downtown neighborhood. Many buildings look empty and dark, but on one corner, light beams from tall glass windows. Inside the Blanchet house, it's warm and cheery. Tony Claiborne has been coming here for years. It's a place of salvation. Claiborne says living on the street requires constant vigilance and fear. Here, it's different. It's a feeling of 
security. I have some place to go for a little bit. This night is special. A local jazz quartet called the Quadraphones is playing a holiday show. A 20-foot noble fir tree with ornaments and lights shines behind them. For Claiborne, the music is a gift. Totally magical. Yes, I am speechless. The dining room is modeled like that of a cafe. Three times a day, six days a week, Blanchet House runs a meal service. All are welcome. Guests sit at tables of four. Volunteer manager Jennifer Ransdell says that generates community and conversation. What we all want when we go out to eat is hospitality. Ransdell is greeting people and getting them seated. Hi there, you can just park that right here and I'll keep an eye on it. A line of volunteer waiters stands ready to serve. Ransdell says she can see people visibly relax when they come in. She watches their body language. Hands are what I notice the most, is that, you know, when folks first get here, their hands are just so cold and stiff. You know, I notice that folks that stay are then able just to kind of just be more mobile. Once they can use their hands, it's like a, a little freedom. Absolutely, absolutely. One guest is a man who, 20 minutes previous, was outside screaming incoherently. Now he politely greets the staff and takes a seat. Tonight's menu, a chicken and vegetable dish, quinoa, freshly baked bread, melon, and coffee. It's about feeding the people, not necessarily converting their souls. Scott Kerman is executive director of Blanchet House. The founders of this organization, 70 years ago, were inspired by the Catholic worker movement, led by a woman named Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day was all about serving to someone's dignity and serving without any expectation of anything in return. The music made guest Sasha Roberts feel like she was at a fancy restaurant. A lot of us get to experience something like that right now, so it's really nice to have it in here. Roberts is bundling up. She's about to slip out the door and back into the night. She's leaving this place calmer than when she came in. I think it kind of brings everyone's stress levels down, you know? So I thought it was good. It, does it remind you of a different time in your life? Yeah, family time, you know? As the quartet plays a familiar hymn, people nod along, feeling found and at home. Katie Riddle, NPR News, Portland. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Whether you're a seasoned cook, so to speak, or simply trying to get by in the kitchen, the holidays present a good time to try to take up a new cookbook and try out some recipes. NPR's Books We Love has a lot of recommendations for you from our staff and contributors. Four of them take us around the world with cookbooks that they enjoyed this year, beginning with Wynn Davis of NPR's All Things Considered. 
If you're looking to spice up your weeknight dinners, Persiana Everyday is a great guide. Sabrina Gaiora's goal is flavor-packed, satisfying dishes, not necessarily to make everything from scratch. From quick hits like the ultimate tuna salad, which involves zero cooking, to the pork, cilantro, and scallion meatballs that are great for banh mi sandwiches, it's easy to find new favorites to add to your weekly rotation. Veggies also get a lot of love here. Gaior's recipes are perfect for whether you're looking for a new soup to get you through winter or if you're trying to avoid turning your oven on during the summer. My name is Milton Gavada. I'm a producer for NPR's Morning Edition and Up First. I'm a huge fan of the book Masa, Techniques, Recipes, and Reflections on a Timeless Staple. It's by Jorge Gaviria. He considers Masa to be one of the greatest human achievements, And that makes sense. Entire civilizations were made possible in part because of it. Masa is the Spanish word for dough, which is made from ground corn. It's what's used in tacos, tamales, pupusas, and so much more. The book Masa is a deep dive into almost everything you need to know about this ancient staple. It's history, science, techniques, and of course, recipes. After reading this book, I have to agree, Masa is an underrated miracle. Hi, I'm Anastasia Tsoulkas. I'm a correspondent on NPR's Culture Desk. And one of my favorite books this year is Michael W. Twitty's Kosher Soul. Twitty explores what it means to be Black and to be Jewish, and to be the inheritor of two diaspora traditions, both the African Atlantic experience and part of the Jewish community. And he delves into what it means to move through the world with that kind of multi-consciousness. And just as in his last wonderful and also deeply researched book, The Cooking Gene, there are some great recipes in kosher soul. And here's a taste. Twitty's spring rolls, which are pastrami and collards fried in egg roll wrappers and zested up with ginger, garlic, and sesame oil. It's like umami heaven. Hello there, my name is Janet Ujangli, and I'm a producer on the Education Desk. The book I want to recommend to everyone this holiday season is The Walks of Life, Recipes to Know and Love from a Chinese-American Family, a cookbook. It's the debut cookbook from the Lung family. They run the Walks of Life blog that launched in 2013. I would say it's a really good Chinese-American cookbook for both nerds and newbies. So there's some more intense restaurant-style recipes like shomai or biangbiang noodles. And then for folks like me, there's quick stir-fry recipes or even things like how to make really good rice, which will make a huge difference to your meal. But more than anything, it's a story of them coming from China and learning to live together in the United States and living really in between the two countries and all of that told through food. You heard about the walks of life, kosher soul, masa, and Persiana every day. And for more cookbook ideas, you can scroll over to our Books We Love list at npr.org slash bestbooks. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Mandatory masking may return to Boston public schools temporarily when classes resume after the holiday break next month. The system's considering that policy as part of an effort to avoid a repeat of the surge in illnesses and severe teacher shortages that hit the district last January. The Boston Globe reports the superintendent sent a letter to families this week making clear that a masking requirement potentially could be in place for two weeks. If you're on the road around Boston this weekend, then keep in mind that the Sumner Tunnel is staying open. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation is keeping the tunnel in use to accommodate the expected high volume of holiday traffic. The Sumner also will be open next Saturday and Sunday for the New Year's holiday. The scheduled weekend closures as part of the Sumner Tunnel Restoration Project will resume the weekend after that. The relatives of late Boston Mayor Tom Menino are honoring his legacy with their annual Christmas Eve toy drive. The Menino family will join Cardinal Sean O'Malley, Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox, and others to hand out toys, food, and clothing to over 300 families in Dorchester. Mayor Menino established the event nearly three decades ago. It's 11 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, a high around 22. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. Open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries. Free Sundays and new museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. Later today on This American Life, one year, for reasons too complicated to go into here, Alex Edelman's Orthodox Jewish parents decided to celebrate Christmas with him and his brother, A.J. And at some point, AJ's standing on the couch, and he looked at me, and he just went, Santa came! And I went, Baruch Hashem! People celebrating first Christmases of all sorts later today. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Union of Concerned Scientists, championing science for a healthy planet and safer, more just world. Learn more at ucsusa.org. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The Taliban has banned women from universities. Girls in secondary schools, too, are being turned away or finding their schools closed indefinitely. That's a supposedly temporary measure the Taliban imposed when it took power in September of 2021. In October last year, NPR spoke to Zakia Menhas, who was then a third-year medical student at Kabul University, about how the atmosphere had changed under the Taliban. Before, like, we were so confident when we were out, whenever we had a problem in one of our subjects or in anything, we were able to just go to our friend if that is male or female. But now it's all like weird. If you just talk to a male friend, they will just harass you or somehow they will just punish you. Since that time, Zakia Menhas has decided it was just too risky to stay. She has left Afghanistan and her family to continue her education here in the United States. Zakia Menhas joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And this news about women being banned from universities and what we've learned about girls in secondary schools, are you in any way surprised? 
it really didn't because I knew that something like this will happen because mm -hmm. they didn't let teenage girls to go to school. So how is it possible for them to let uh, girls go to uh, universities? When NPR last spoke to you, you were you were in Afghanistan. May we ask how you got here? I really wanted to continue my education. I searched for a lot of scholarships in many countries. And then finally, I found out about Bard College that they're having this hundred scholarships for Afghan students. Fortunately, they accept me and I just decided to change my major because it is hard to take a scholarship to study medical here. So you're, you're not studying medicine right now? Uh, no, I don't. I'm just a freshman majoring in computer science. So yeah, all those four years just starting from the beginning. It was very hard for me at first, but it was the only option. I was not sure that whether I'm able to leave my country or not. I face a lot of things to just get out of there. And I was lucky. There were 17 girls and they were trying to go to Doha and then like continue their education, but they didn't let them. You still have friends and family there, uh, including... Um sisters who teach in high school, I gather. Have you been able to speak with them, communicate with them? Uh, well, yeah. First, when I saw this news, uh, I just called to my friends and they had just one final exam was left. And then I talked to my sister and she told me that, uh, well, I went to school and they didn't let us in. And they told us, like, you have to just go home. May I ask what your sisters are doing at the moment? Do you know? Today I called them and they told me, like, uh, now we are home. They are not happy because they had a good job. They were satisfied with teaching the girls and, like, just that one day everything changed. So they are not okay. Because you're in the United States, because this interview will be heard, do you worry about what might happen to your family? Of course. Every second I'm just thinking about that. It's not like I'm here and I'm safe, that's it. i just thinking about my family and I'm sorry. That's all right. We, uh, we understand entirely. Don't worry. And all the friends who are still there and they're suffering. So literally everyone, the whole Afghanistan is my family and I'm thinking about them. Is there something the world can do? I just want to say to the world that uh, this is the beginning and if they don't stand with Afghan women, the future will be the darkest. So just support them through media and like to raise their voice for Afghan women. And that can help. Zikia Menhas is a student from Afghanistan here at Bard College in New York. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, our best to you and your family. Thank you for having me. 
ירושלים של זהב, של אמת וכזב, בלבבות ממערב ועד מזרח. Look, there were Jerusalem during Hanukkah, and there's festive music, jelly donuts, menorahs lighting in the darkness. Maybe even a little hip-hop. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday, NPR's Daniel Estrin takes us on an evening stroll with the musician Shannon on Street, whose new single is called City of God. You can listen at this station's website or at npr.org. The death of Joan Didion a year ago inspired an outpouring of tributes. The writer had become synonymous with the 1960s in her home state of California. Among her fans is the critic Hilton Knowles of The New Yorker. He's curated an exhibition about Joan Didion called What She Means, now at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. NPR's Bilal Qureshi takes us there. One of the first sounds you might hear in the temporary museum of Joan Didion is actually not the writer herself. It's a vinyl record spinning on an old turntable. The music is part of an installation by the artist Jack Pearson. He's assembled what could be the corner of a writer's apartment, a slightly messy and disorganized one. There's an empty chair sitting by a shelf, unopened books, and the living remains of a day, as curator Connie Butler explains. The flowers, the orange marigolds that you see on the table are actually replenished every week. They're meant to wilt and die over the course of the week. As well as in the coffee cup, there's some old coffee and remnants of cigarettes. This installation was about someone in their room and someone in their room dreaming and Joan Didion is one of the catalysts for dreams. I love that piece for that reason. That's the writer Hilton Owls, who began working on the show in 2019 with Joan Didion's blessings. The idea would be that life could be seen. A life could be tactile. A life could be walked around, inhabited by a viewer. Owls and Didion were friends, and a recording of a conversation between them is one of the 200 artworks in the show. There are also large-scale passages from her writing printed on the gallery walls. Joan Didion wrote dark, cutting observations about American society, as she told NPR in 1977. I am more attracted to the underside of the tapestry. I tend to always look for the uh, wrong side, the bleak side. But this is not an exhibition of her writing instruments or personal things. Those were recently auctioned in a bidding war that speaks to her enduring fame. Instead, this is a show about atmosphere and the California of the Manson murders, Black Panthers, and counterculture that formed Joan Didion. Again, curator Hilton Owls. She was just very interested in how the myth of California, the pioneer spirit, had gotten sort of derailed in modern California and that she began to see the ways in which racism worked and money worked and sexism worked. She began to understand that there was no centrality to California, that it was many different kinds of worlds at the same time. For years, Hollywood was one of her worlds. She co-wrote the screenplay for the 1976 version of A Star is Born. But even as she critiqued the LA image machine, she became a celebrity in her own right. As Connie Butler explains, the show reflects the tension between Didion the writer and Didion the star. 
And we tried to go for images that aren't the classic one of her leaning against the Corvette smoking, where she is gorgeous and stylish and fantastic, but we tried to look for slightly other things. I mean, in the last gallery, there are several images of her as a very elderly person and still stylish at that moment, still beautiful at that moment. Joan Didion died last December in the midst of a new reckoning with privilege and race in American art. For some writers here in California, her narrative of the state is up for debate. Earlier this year, the essayist Elaine Castillo published a scathing takedown of Didion's brand of West Coast cool. But Hilton Owls, who is black and queer, says the focus on her origins and image misses the point. I feel very defensive about her in that way. And it's just, it's bizarre to me that it's even an issue. What she looks like, please just read her. One of the last sort of things I want to ask you about, again, is the sort of museum exhibition mm-hmm. of Joan Didion question, which is the the show that you've created, which is now we're talking almost a year to her death, and it could mm-hmm. have this posthumous memorial feeling, and yet it doesn't. No, because her work is alive. You have to think about it as an alive thing. So how could you respond by mummifying it? You could only respond by saying what was beautiful and what you're responding to because you're alive to the experience of reading her. Um, no, she's alive. Those, those words are alive. The exhibition, Joan Didion, What She Means, is at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles until the end of February and will open later next year in Miami. Bilal Qureshi, NPR <laughs> News. Imagine getting a hug from your parents for the first time in more than a decade. That's the gift Mexican immigrants living in Alabama are receiving this year. They have been separated from their families back home for that long. From member station WBHM, Mary Scott Hodgin has the story. Dozens of people crowd into an event space just outside of Birmingham. They set out homemade dishes like salads, a Mexican soup called pozole, cakes with fresh fruit. They decorate tables with balloons and flowers. It's all for their parents, who are on the way from Mexico via the Atlanta airport. Here we are waiting for them. It's very emotional. That's Maria de Rocio Rodriguez Telles. She left home in Michoacan, Mexico, 25 years ago, and hasn't been able to return. Until recently, Rodriguez was undocumented, like many people in the group. So visiting family in Mexico meant risking not being able to get back into this country. Rodriguez now has a pending immigration case, but she still doesn't have permission to leave and re-enter the U.S. You know, the desire to come here and having to come here for a better future, that you sacrifice a lot. A bus pulls up to the event space. It's the parents. Many have traveled all day and night. I step inside and ask how the trip was. They say it was great. They're tired, but very happy. Rodriguez's parents sit towards the back. Her mom, Eritania Telles Maldonado, says the trip from their small town in Michoacan was an adventure. Yes, because it's the first time we've flown. 
Taye says she's tried to get a tourist visa three times to visit her daughter and was always denied. She doesn't know why. That's not uncommon, according to Monica Black. She's with the Alabama Coalition for Immigrant Justice, the group organizing the event. I mean, there are people who have applied seven times and it have been denied. To get tourist visas, people have to show ties to Mexico, like proof of employment or a mortgage, something to convince U.S. immigration authorities that they plan to return home after their trip. Black says under their program, parents apply for visas together as part of a cultural visit. When they are going in big groups, it's easy for them to be authorized. The Alabama Immigrant Coalition works with Mexican officials to streamline the process, but it can still take a while. Depending on where they apply, people in Mexico have to wait up to two years or more to interview for an individual tourist visa. That's according to the U.S. State Department's website. As the reunions begin, piano music starts to play. After 25 years, announces the master of ceremonies. He calls out the parents' names, and they meet their children in the middle of the room. They hug and cry. One family hired a mariachi band to celebrate. Black says they've been overwhelmed by the demand to participate in these visits. Nearly 600 people have applied, and 600 more are on a wait list. It's a job that is very satisfactory for, for us and, and for all the families, and we see that it's, it's a need that our community is asking for. Many Mexican immigrants have lived in Alabama for decades. They now have kids and grandkids here, and Black says they want to share that with their parents. The visits last up to two months, and families soak up every minute. <laughs> a few weeks after the reunion, Rodriguez and her parents gather in her kitchen. Rodriguez is in heaven as she savors her mom's chicharrones with tomato salsa and special rice for the first time in decades. Her parents, Elitania Tellez Maldonado and Camilo Rodriguez Mares, are grateful. It's something I carry deep in my heart to see my children, to share life with them, to get to know so much of their lives here. The great-grandchildren, and to get to know all the great-grandchildren. So far, the family has gone to the beach and to a basketball game. They love to watch telenovelas together late at night. And they can't wait to celebrate Christmas Eve together tonight for the first time in a quarter century. For NPR News, I'm Mary Scott Hodgen in Birmingham. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy, Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 11 degrees in Boston, coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance. 
who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. And Avangrid, a clean energy company committed to accelerating Massachusetts climate goals by investing in offshore wind and hydroelectric energy designed to power 2 million homes every day and help reduce carbon emissions by 7 million tons, believing that acting on climate change can't wait. On this week's On the Media, I look back at a year filled with wars of the present, echoes of the past, and fights over all kinds of fictions. I don't believe the results of 2020. Somebody has to lose an election. There is a winner and there is a loser. It's been that way all through history. We joke and say 2020 is never going to go away. 2023, anyone? On the next On the Media from WNYC. Today at 1 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the House January 6th Committee's final report. Will any recommendation lead to action later? What the Christmas tree has come to mean in Ukraine, especially this winter. Also an encore of our story on donors, recipients, and surgical staff in an extraordinary 10-way chain of life at Houston Methodist Hospital. And in his new film, Living, Bill Nye plays a man who receives a most discouraging medical diagnosis, but uses it to bring joy. Somebody said to me last night, I expected to be unhappy by the end. And in fact, I was inspired. First, we have our newscast. It is Christmas Eve, Saturday, December 24, 2022. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. Much of the nation is shivering through a bone-chilling cold snap following a winter storm that brought heavy rain, snow, and ice. NPR's Jasmine Garst reports on the state of emergency in New York. New York Governor Kathy Hochul called it a storm for the ages and urged New Yorkers traveling for the holidays to wait until Sunday to travel as road conditions across the state could be dangerous. Over the weekend, much of the state is expected to see winds of up to 60 miles per hour, temperatures dropping by more than 35 degrees in some regions, and icy road conditions. Thousands of power outages are already being reported across western New York, where there have been several interstate and highway closures. Jasmine Garst, NPR News. New York. The weather forced airlines to cancel more than 5,000 flights Friday, and more cancellations and delays are being added today. Blizzard and whiteout conditions closed roads, crippling holiday travel, and NPR's David Shaper reports hundreds of thousands are without power. Power outages can be especially dangerous when temperatures plummet well below freezing, as they have in much of the country. Scott Aronson is with the Edison Electric Institute, a power company trade group. He says crews are working around the clock to restore power, but wind, snow, and ice make that job more difficult. First, you have to be able to access the area that was impacted. Then you have to assess the damage and then ultimately begin the uh, job of restoring power. Uh, Accessing some of these areas with down power lines, with down trees, with icy roads can be really uh, challenging. 
Aronson adds that high winds in particular can limit the ability of utility crews to go up in bucket trucks, further slowing power restoration efforts. David Shaper, NPR News. Most of the outages are in the eastern part of the country, according to PowerOutage.us. Maine, North Carolina, and Tennessee are the hardest-hit states. Thousands are also without power in Washington State and Texas. Earlier this week, the University of California, San Francisco, apologized for medical experiments on prisoners in the 60s and 70s. But some faculty are saying that's not enough. NPR Sundia Dirks reports. The experiments included exposing incarcerated men to pesticides and herbicides without their knowledge or consent. They were conducted by two doctors, faculty in the school's dermatology department, one who is still employed there. UCSF professor of medicine Rupert Maria says the school must do more than offer an apology. Before remorse, there's justice. And that justice means that we have to center the people who've been most impacted. Restorative justice, Maria says, means reaching out to those who were harmed, as well as finding ways to offer care to currently incarcerated people and examining the school's complicity, not just the individual doctor's actions. Sandhya Dirks, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Cold temperatures and bitter wind chills are gripping southern New England today. This morning's wind chills below zero degrees are the coldest in the region since late January. National Weather Service meteorologist Bill Leatham is urging everyone to be careful. If folks are going out this weekend to just make sure to dress appropriately, and with the with the travel, like I said, most roadways are probably fine, but there still could be some slick spots around there given how cold we are. So folks will want to take it slow if they're traveling. Forecasters say after temperatures top out in the 20s this weekend, conditions become milder. And toward the end of next week, the Boston area could have highs of over 50 degrees. An Athol man has been convicted for his involvement in the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Investigators say 61-year-old Vincent Gillespie pushed, yelled at, and fought with police. At one point, he used a police shield to ram officers. He will be sentenced in March. Gillespie is the son of renowned painter Gregory Gillespie. Pine Street Inn is getting ready to welcome a full slate of Christmas volunteers today for the first time since 2019. The Boston Homeless Shelter is preparing to serve around 1,000 steak or prime rib meals. Barbara Trevisan is a Pine Street Inn spokesperson, and she says the volunteers help guests feel connected with the community. Volunteers will also sing carols, decorate, wrap gifts, lead activities, and bake cookies. In sports, last night the Celtics beat the Timberwolves 121 to 109. The Bruins beat the Devils 4 to 3. Add Gillette this afternoon, the Patriots face the Bengals. It is 11 degrees in Boston. Sunny today with a high around 22 degrees and wind chill values as low as 3 below. Clear skies tonight with a low about 14, sunny tomorrow for Christmas, and temperatures reaching the upper 20s on Monday, sunshine, and highs in the low 30s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thanks for being along with us today. The House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol has issued its full report. It's long, more than 800 pages. It includes a list of recommendations on what committee members think should happen next, and those include barring former President Trump from running for office again. NPR political reporter Deepa Shivera has gone into the report and joins us. Good morning, Deepa. Hey, good morning. So much of this report centers around the actions of former President Trump that led up to the insurrection. What are the consequences, though? Yeah, so basically in this 800-page report, like you said, uh, the committee goes into detail uh, on what happened leading up to the January 6th insurrection and what they think should happen next. So the biggest thing are these criminal referrals, which we learned about earlier this week. The committee referred Trump to the Department of Justice for four criminal charges. And in the full report, which came out late Thursday night, they cite part of the 14th Amendment. And this part says that anyone who took an oath to uphold the Constitution but engaged in an insurrection can be barred from holding federal or state office. So they recommend that Trump shouldn't be able to run for office ever again. And they also recommend creating a way to evaluate whether other people who took part in the insurrection should be barred from holding future government office on federal levels or other levels. And what have we heard from the former president? We heard from the former president uh, on his social media platform called Truth Social about the report. He's once again repeating his lie that the 2020 election was stolen from him. And he called the committee highly partisan and said their investigation was a witch hunt. Deepa, tell us about some of the other recommendations the committee laid out. Yeah, there are quite a few here that are aimed at protecting democracy. One of the recommendations is that Congress should make stronger criminal penalties for people who obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. And there's a recommendation on adjusting the Electoral Count Act, for example. So it's more specific in saying that the vice president's role in certifying an election is completely ceremonial. The committee also recommended more oversight over the Capitol Police as they improve their planning and training processes. And Scott, a lot of the report is focused on Trump's actions to overturn the 2020 election. But there were so many everyday people whose lives were impacted by this, including election workers. And one of the committee's recommendations is for more federal penalties for those who threaten election workers. The committee's investigation found that many of the people who refused Trump's requests to change the election results or were caught in the middle of it were subject to harassment, intimidation, and violent threats. So one of the committee's recommendations is to help protect those workers, too. A new Congress uh, is going to be sworn in within days. Republicans will uh, have control of the lower chamber. Do we expect anything to happen to these recommendations? At this point, it's unclear what's going to happen with some of these recommendations, but some of them, like reforming the Electoral Count Act, has already happened. It got included in the end-of-year budget bill. But like you said, the thing to keep in mind is that Republicans are set to take control of the House uh, very soon, in early January. So we have a divided Congress, which likely means a divided approach on how to handle some of these recommendations. There were four House members, including Representative Kevin McCarthy, who were subpoenaed by the committee but did didn't comply. And the committee recommended that they face repercussions for that. But with the GOP-led House, that's probably not likely going to happen. And when it comes to some of those criminal referrals to the Department of Justice, like I mentioned before, that's just something that we're going to have to wait on. Attorney General Merrick Garland has assigned a special counsel for the investigations into Trump. His name is Jack Smith, and we'll be watching to see what he does next. NPR political reporter Deepa Shivram, thanks so much. Thank you.
Iranians have been protesting for more than three months. Demonstrations began after the death of an Iranian Kurdish woman in the custody of the the morality police. Iran's government has responded by cracking down on those protests and recently imposed death penalties for some participants, including a prominent Iranian doctor. And Paris Peter Kenyon has been following the developments from Istanbul. Peter, thanks for being with us. Hi, Scott. We've seen several waves of intense protests over, I guess, the last 90 days. Does this pace seem to be continuing? The demonstrations are still going on, especially in the major cities. Uh, One took place this week in Zahedan, that's a city in southeast Iran. Here's a bit of what it sounded like. So people are still turning out, but Iranians and analysts say the demonstrations are a bit smaller, a bit less frequent recently. Uh, This could be just a lull, or some event might spark a resurgence. It could also suggest to some that the fierce crackdown is finally starting to work. But the counter-argument to that is the protesters are still continuing to take to the streets, in spite of the violence inflicted by security forces, uh, and in spite of the death sentences being handed out by Iranian courts. Peter, what's the government say about the protests? Iranian officials are doubling down on their main contention that this is all being engineered by the U.S. and other, quote, enemies of Iran. Iran's foreign minister at a regional conference in Jordan said recently that, quote, irresponsible interventions by the U.S. and Western countries that have themselves been dealing with protests and reacting in the most violent manner continue to try their best to destabilize Iran. And now beyond that, Iran has suddenly become a lot more interested in another topic, reviving the 2015 nuclear agreement. Talks in Vienna had stalled when Iran began throwing up objections and demands, and then the Biden administration basically signaled that concluding this deal and restoring the nuclear deal was unlikely to happen while Iran is beating, imprisoning, and killing its own citizens. But now Iran does want to focus attention back on its nuclear program. Peter, there's been an awful lot of international attention and outcry over uh, Iran imposing death penalties on protesters and carrying out two known executions. What do you know about these cases? Well, nearly two dozen people could face a death sentence, say rights groups. Uh, I reached one man, Hassan Hassanlu, in the Netherlands. Uh, he's the brother of Dr. Hamid Gharay Hassanlu, who faces execution after being convicted of demonstrating against the regime. Um, Hassan told me he's not surprised because his brother has very strong beliefs. Uh, here's some of what he told me. On something that he believes, he would be as stubborn as hell. He was tortured in a way, four of his ribs was broken, and he had three surgeries so far. And he didn't confess. He didn't confess on something that he didn't do. Hassan Lu says he's proud of his brother, even though there could be consequences now for his family or his colleagues. Peter, what do you, uh, what do you anticipate or look for to see what direction these protests might take next? I think first, will the protests grow smaller or possibly see a resurgence? Will there be another shift in their demands? Now, this started after the death of a young Kurdish woman in police custody. Then it morphed into a call to topple the government. Is there another shift in store? So that will also bear watching. NPR's Peter Kenyon in Istanbul. Thanks so much for being with us, Peter. Thanks, Scott. This holiday season, you might find yourself with time to catch up on some films. What to watch? NPR's Life Kit team tackles how to be both adventurous and intentional 
in your movie watching instead of just, you know, reaching for the latest blockbusters. That's later today on All Things Considered. And you can listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR. That's why they're smart. Or your member station by name. We've been sharing audience kitchen favorites in a series called All Things We're Cooking, a clever play on the title for a daily show for which B.J. Lederman also did the theme music. Today, Ellie King of Pittsburgh tells us about a fruitcake. That's a recipe that's been in her family for generations. My grandma Phoebe was very strict. Fruitcake was the Christmas dessert. You know, my mom remembers making it with my grandma Phoebe in her kitchen. I like to think of it as like my mom's introduction to the family, you know, she's sort of being adopted into this family and let in on the the family tradition of making fruitcake. The original recipe makes 10 pounds of fruitcake, so it's like an astounding amount of fruitcake. No one can remember exactly where it came from, but the family legend is that great-grandmother Demick like hand wrote a copy of this fruitcake recipe and mailed it to Grandma Phoebe somewhere around World War II. When I was a kid, I didn't like fruitcake, but I love it now. My mom's family is from Iowa and her dad was a big cyclist and he loved to do sort of the Midwest bike rides. So we decided one year, you know, he was getting pretty old and we decided you know, since he can't ride anymore, we're gonna ride. Me and my parents and my my then boyfriend, he's now my husband, and we needed a team name. And I was trying to think of like something that represents our family. And I was like, you know what? Fruitcake. In 2020, when my husband and I were thinking about getting married, we didn't want like a traditional sort of wedding. We wanted to do something kind of wacky and, and fun. And so we decided we were gonna get married on Radbri, the Register's annual great bicycle ride across Iowa. And then obviously everything got canceled because of COVID and we weren't able to do RAGBRAI that year. And then in 2021, we invited everyone who was gonna ride with us in 2020 to do RAGBRAI with us as sort of Team Fruitcakes 2.0. So I baked a lot of fruitcake that summer and I packed it all up. We had a ton of fun and it was a really nice way to introduce fruitcake to like a bunch of family and friends that didn't know anything about fruitcake. The idea that, you know, the women in my family, like going back generations, have been making this, because I think a lot of times women's stories sort of get overshadowed by, you know, the men in their lives, especially if, if the men are, you know, successful and have wonderful jobs and things like that. And so it's, to me, it's sort of a way of honoring their stories. My grandma, my great-grandma, even my aunt and my mom, like it's a way of thinking about them. Ellie King of Pittsburgh, you can try out her fruitcake recipe and others from our series uh, if you search All Things We're Cooking at npr.org. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. And ahead on Weekend Edition, WBUR Sarah Shukla reflects on a big anniversary for a Muppet movie. Also, you'll get the story from Florida on iguanas and power outages. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. It is 
A brisk 12 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, a high around 22 with wind chill values as low as 3 below zero. Tonight, mostly clear skies, a low around 14 degrees for Christmas. Tomorrow, plenty of sunshine and highs reaching the upper 20s. Monday should be sunny with temperatures in the low 30s. And looking ahead to Tuesday, partly sunny skies and highs in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Much of the nation is shivering through a bone-chilling cold snap, and with temperatures plunging, there are hundreds of thousands of power outages. Most are in the eastern part of the country, but there are thousands of outages in Washington State and Texas. Congress has recessed for the holidays after scrambling this week to pass a government spending bill. The roughly $1.7 trillion measure will keep federal agencies funded through September. And police in Minnesota are searching for suspects in a fatal shooting at the Mall of America, the nation's largest shopping mall. A 19-year-old man was killed there last night after what police say appeared to be an altercation between two groups. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Searchlight Pictures presenting Empire of Light, a new film directed by Sam Mendes, starring Olivia Colman, Michael Ward, and Colin Firth about human connection and the magic of cinema, now playing in theaters everywhere. And from Clarivate, creators of the Ideas to Innovation podcast, an exploration into solutions designed to address the world's most complex problems at clarivate.com slash podcasts. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Today, an encore presentation of a story we brought you in March. Ten strangers brought together at Houston Methodist Hospital to save the lives of strangers. Howdy. I'm checking in. Michael Wingard, a rangy young man with a small brown scrub brush of a beard, checks into Houston Methodist Hospital. He's in fine health, and he's about to have his left kidney removed. It'll be sewn into the body of a total stranger. It is the day before Michael Wingard turns 20. Yeah, it is, but I've barely been thinking about that. (laughs) So no cake, unfortunately. It'd be like Jell-O or something like that. The Wingard family is from Kerrville, Texas, about four hours west of Houston. Michael's parents, Adrian and Ed, are with him. Their eyes moisten above their masks. Michael's mother tells us. So I'm very, very nervous and scared and all those emotions, but I'm so proud of them. So when I asked him, he was like, Mom, if I don't do this, no one will. So he knew that his friend needed a kidney and had to do whatever it took to make it happen. Michael Wingard is the first link we met in a 10-person chain of life. He's donating a kidney because Kaylin, his friend in Kerrville, has one that's failing. Michael's kidney doesn't match her blood or tissues, but transplant specialists at Houston Methodist know Michael's kidney can go to Heather, a 30-year-old woman in Dayton, Texas, whose kidneys cannot clear waste from her blood. She and her twin sister Stacy already have identical tattoos in Gaelic, but they have some incompatible antibodies. 
So a 43-year-old woman named Lisa who dotes on her family and their bulldogs will donate her kidney to Kaylin so her 72-year-old mother Barbara, a great-grandmother, can receive a kidney from a 67-year-old man David. And Stacy can give her kidney to a 47-year-old man named Javier. So lives can go on. No one in the swamp knew the identity of their donors and could choose to keep it that way. But they're bound in a chain of life. We asked Adrian Winger. Your mother, your parent, the last thing we want for any of our children is for them to be hurt in any way. Yeah. Did it ever occur to you to say, don't, please, yeah. honey, this could be, I know the odds are small, but my God, it's, it's serious surgery. And um, it actually didn't, you know, his mind was set and we knew that we wouldn't want to change that. He gets to show people by example of how to be a good person. Houston Methodist Hospital is one of the leading transplant centers in the world. The music we're hearing, by the way, is played live on a piano in the lobby of the hospital. There are now about 90,000 people nationally on a waiting list for a new kidney. Many wait years. Some die waiting. Transplanting kidneys from live donors greatly increases the number of kidneys available. And such transplants are performed every month at Houston Methodist. This 10-person procedure is rare, with all the complexities to be synchronized, matching antigens, patient health, and COVID. This kidney swap has already had to be postponed three times since December but no longer. Dr. Richard Link, Michael's surgeon, arrives early the next morning as the sun climbs the Texas sky and Adrian and Ed Winger blink out blurriness in a few tears. We're going to take out the left side today. The left side and the right side are very similar for you. They're very similar in size. But the left side is a Dr. Link explains that with laparoscopic surgery, they can remove a kidney through a two-inch long incision. Um, and I've probably done more than a thousand that way at this point. Right. You'll be surprised that we can get a kidney out of the size of the <laughs> yeah. hole that we make. It's a little bit of a magic trick. It's really the only magic trick I know how to do. <laughs> well, um, it's funny you say a magic trick. It's, uh, it's also, I mean, this whole story is kind of a miracle, isn't it? It is. It is. This is, this is emblematic of really an, an incredible gift, obviously. Um, for you, and also just an incredible system that now exists to allow this type of swapping to facilitate getting kidneys for so many people. So at this point, you can give like hugs, kisses, yeah. high fives. And when Michael Wingard is wheeled down a hall for surgery, his parents hold on to him, then onto each other's hands. All right, buddy. All right. Rock it. Yeah. Come here, Mama. I love you, Mama. Okay, let's do it. So I give up one of my kidneys to help someone else, and someone else will give a kidney to help keep my mom going. Lisa Jolivet of Houston is 43, and her COVID mask can't conceal some of the same ebullience of her three teen children. She says her 72-year-old mother was at first opposed to her donating a kidney to a stranger to help her. You know, she kind of threw in the towel and was just like, this is my faith. And we're like, absolutely not. <laughs> Lisa says her mother worried that a daughter's act of love might be risky for her health than her own children. I think she was more against it because I have my own family, right? 
Um, she feels as though I'm in the prime of my life. But, you know, after, you know, we researched, I provided confidence in her like, hey, you know, this works. So this is the kidney right here. We were able to be present at the hospital for most of the 10 surgeries. Each one is amazing and intricate, but you begin to see why surgical teams call them routine. The territory inside a body becomes familiar. They know all the stops, turns, and shortcuts. So this is the renal vein right here, this blue structure. That's an important, obviously an important structure for the transplant, so we're going to preserve it. Dr. Link slices through skin and tissue, around muscle, and toward the left kidney. He steers a laparoscope with a tiny light and camera to guide the snips made with a harmonic scalpel that cut and cauterizes in the same slice through red veins small as wisps and globs and smears of yellow fat. So we're looking, now we've flipped the kidney over and we're just kind of looking behind it just to see if there's anything else that needs to come. The journey to the left kidney is captured in 3D images that dramatize the colors and the view is other as well as inner worldly. Let's get a big view. The spleen looks like a smooth pink bean designed by a big name architect. The stomach walls are whorls of light pink and ivory like a great cathedral. You are reminded of Shakespeare's phrase, what a piece of work is man. So let's see, do you have for us our stuff for the extraction? Do you have yes, sir. 15 bag up and ready? You got two loads on the stapler. You got a clip applier, state and scissors. Perfect. So can I explain? Hi. Dr. Osama Gaber, head of the Houston Methodist Transplant Program, sits ready at a silver bowl packed with crushed ice. And the fist-sized kidney is slipped out through a slit that looks about as wide as the edge of a credit card. It's rinsed and placed in the bowl. The crushed ice begins to melt against the kidney and turns the bowl slushy and red like a summertime treat. The major problem with transplants is as you take organs outside of the body, they, they die very quickly. So cooling is one technique, and the other one is to put fluids inside the kidney, number one, lowering the temperature because that's cooled, but number two, you're also getting all the blood out. Then he takes off down a hallway with a humid kidney packed in a plastic bag inside a white plastic ice bucket of the kind you might find in the room of a chain motel. Most of the time, Dr. Gaber balances the bucket that holds the kidney with one hand. No one he encounters in the hallways stops to chat. They know me if I'm carrying something, it has to be an organ. Kidney is received so, and sewn into place in the front of the lower the, belly, the where it can be protected by abdominal muscles. Right. When the ureter of the new kidney is connected in the body, <laughs> it spurts out a few drops of urine. That was urine, actually. Sometimes they shoot like a little baby boy. <laughs> Dr. Hemangshu Potter and the surgical team sound as delighted as parents of a newborn over a crib. Apparently, I peed all over the table as soon as he hooked it up. Heather O'Neill told us the day after she got her new kidney. I was like, oh, that's great. <laughs> and she'd be happy to meet the whoever it is whose kidney is now hers and working well. I'll be kind of awkward, though, I think, but... I feel like I should meet whoever gave me their kidney. Yeah. And thank them. <laughs> the rare kind of reunion takes place in a small room at Houston Methodist Hospital. It's called a reveal. Those who received a donated kidney meet the strangers who volunteered a piece of themselves to save them. 
Dr. Gaber says they perform about 700 transplants a year at Houston Methodist in total, kidneys, livers, hearts, and lungs. But chain donations of the size we saw are rare and can be hard to report. Donors and recipients aren't told in advance about each other. Doctors want donors to feel they can back out without regret or explanation. And some donors choose to remain anonymous. Hello. Hello. We got. We have everyone here except for the pair that went ahead for surgery today. But two days after the surgeries in this 10-person swap began, Valerie Jackson, the living donor coordinator at Houston Methodist, Welcome strangers into a conference room who would help give life to one another. I'm just, I got goosebumps now, too, just being here with you all. I would like to just introduce the donors first. The donors and recipients knew each other's ages and genders, so as the strangers sat in this small room, you could see their eyes settle on who seemed likeliest. And Lisa? Dr. Gaber told Lisa Jolivet that a kidney from David McClellan just been successfully transplanted to her mother, so Barbara Mo. She did great. I just finished off her. The kidney looks beautiful and everything went fantastic. Chris McClellan learned that he now lives with a kidney from Tomas Martinez. Well, Tomas, you have an awesome kidney. They already said that um, my numbers are down. and I'm, A compliment yeah, so. only he could offer. Thank you so much. Thank you for my life back. <laughs> Stacey O'Neill told our sister Heather had seen a young man in the hospital hallways and guessed he might be her donor. Yeah, she told me yesterday, hey, I think I just saw my donor when I was walking around. <laughs> and it was, in fact, Michael Winger with whom this chain of life began. Twin sisters brought him a stuffed toy that matches one Heather has, a gift for the 20th birthday he spent in recovery from surgery, giving up the gift of his kidney. What's it like to look into the face of someone who received a part of you and gets to go on with life because of it? It's surreal. I mean, we're all different ages, different walks of life. Lisa Jolivet looked down the long table and saw Kaylin Connolly, the 19-year-old friend of Michael Winger, who received her kidney. She's a baby, you know? <laughs> I've lived half my life, and she's, you know, it's just to be able to prolong her life is just amazing. I mean, the fact that we're all just going through this together, it's unreal. I would do it again if I could. If I had, if I was able to, I would definitely do it again. And Stacey O'Neill, who chose to donate to a stranger because her kidney had incompatible antibodies with her twin sister, Heather, learned that her organ was now sewn inside the body of Javier Ramirez Ochoa, the father-in-law of Tomas Martinez, who'd given his kidney to Chris McClellan. They remind us how acts of kindness can resound in surprising and astounding ways. You know, never in a million years did you think that you'd be a part of something like this. So it's just Even if it's not my sister, I can help her, but I can also help somebody else. So I feel like it's, it's even better than just the original plan. There are nearly 90,000 people on the Oregon Procurement and Transplantation Network waiting list who need a kidney. This year, about 3,500 people died waiting when matching kidneys never became available, typically from people who donate after death. Live donations could greatly increase the number of organs available. To see it work with 10 people in this chain donation may remind you of an image from Michelangelo 
where a hand reaches out from the clouds to another hand with the spark of life. Nine months later, Houston Methodist tells us that all the patients we got to know, donors and recipients, are doing well. Several have become friends. In a year with so much tough news to cover, their stories are bright reminders of the blessings of life. Samantha Balaban and Gabriel Dunatoff produced our stories from Houston Methodist, along with editor Dee Parvaz. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. The Muppets are celebrating a special anniversary. 30 years ago this month, the movie The Muppet Christmas Carol premiered in theaters. Under the direction of Brian Henson, the Charles Dickens tale was interpreted by the likes of Kermit the Frog, Miss Piggy, and the Great Gonzo. WBUR editor Sarah Shukla has been a fan of the film for as long as she can remember. In this commentary, she shares why the Muppet classic means even more to her this holiday season. I think the first thing to know about the Muppet Christmas Carol is how perfectly it was cast. I give it a 10 out of 10, no notes. Kermit the Frog, ever the voice of reason and patience, is a natural Bob Cratchit. Michael Caine, yes, the Michael Caine, as Scrooge, lends the story gravitas. And Gonzo's narration as Charles Dickens delivers. From he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge, to Tiny Tim, who did not die. That's all Dickens, straight from the original text. Oh, there goes Mr. Humbug, there goes Mr. Grimm. If a game of prize were being me, the winner would be him. Brian Henson made the film when he was just 28. His dad, Jim Henson, who created the Muppets, had died two years earlier. It was Brian's first time directing, and in his own words, he was terrified. But he decided to do things a little differently than the usual Muppets approach by leaning into the darker elements of Dickens' text. Then he asked Paul Williams, who'd lost a decade to alcoholism and addiction, to return to the Muppet family to write some of the film's most beloved songs about love and redemption. The result is an enduring interplay of light and dark. You see it in Michael Caine playing Scrooge as if he's in a Shakespeare production. Now then, sir, about the... uh... Donation? Well, now, let's see. I know how to treat the poor. My taxes go to pay for the prisons and the poor houses. The homeless must go there. But some would rather die. If they'd rather die, then they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. Oh, dear, oh, dear. And in Kermit, reminding the Cratchit family and us of one of life's inevitable truths. It's all right, children. Life is made up of meetings and partings. That is the way of it. I am sure we shall never forget Tiny Tim or this first parting that there was among us. I loved this version of A Christmas Carol when I was a kid precisely because it scared me just a little. When the door knocker morphs into Marley's face and he moans, shivers. Jacob. My six-year-old always snuggles in closer at that part. Then we laugh as Marley and Marley appear and sing their foreboding duet. True, there was something about mankind we loved. I think it was their money. (laughs) (laughs) Doom, Scrooge, you're doomed for all time. Your future is a horror story. 
story written by your crime. After spending many a Christmas Eve with Kermit and Gonzo, I've been thinking a lot about how life can change overnight. For example, one day you're packing school lunches, and the next your kids are home with Chromebooks, return date TBD. We all lived some version of that story. In the last three years, we've all lived a before and an after. At times, life felt as unimaginable as being visited by three spirits. Are you the spirit whose coming was foretold to me? I am. But... You're just a child. I can remember nearly 1,900 years. I'm the ghost of Christmas past. What business has brought you here? In the film's final song, Thankful Heart, the lyrics talk about how life is precious. The Muppets don't shy away from the dark places life inevitably takes us. And so the ending of the film is resoundingly joyous. Maybe that's how we should all try to walk into the new year, with a thankful heart. With a thankful heart, with an endless joy, with a growing family, every girl and boy will be nephew and niece to me. Sarah Shukla is a writer and editor for WBUR's Ideas and Opinion page. You can read her essay and many more at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR during the holiday stretch. The news is here along with stories, conversations, and reflections as we wrap up 2022. It is... 12 degrees in Boston, sunny skies today with a high reaching about 22 degrees and wind chill values as low as zero. Mostly clear tonight with a low around 14 degrees and for Christmas tomorrow, sunshine and highs in the upper 20s. On Monday, sunny skies and highs in the low 30s. This is WBUR. The Federal Trade Commission works to ensure that no one company becomes a monopoly. And when it comes to tech, that isn't always easy. There can be somewhat of a David and Goliath dynamic where we're a small little agency that's really punching above our weight because Congress has given us such an important job. I'm Andrew Limbong. We chat with FTC Chair Lena Khan about the agency's big year and what's to come on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Total Wine & More, where in-store teams can recommend a bottle of wine, spirit, or beer for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. And from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. You know, we wait all year for the holidays and all week to say it's time for sports. A World Cup for the ages and other highlights from the year in sports and the fridge returns to football. As the whole field, Howard Brad of Meadowlark Media joins us. Howard, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. Merry Christmas. How and, are you? And Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Look, I, I don't, I don't want to, <laughs> oh, I don't want to overlook the plight of migrant workers in Qatar, which we talked about, and and should in the future. 
But I do want to talk about the World Cup as the World Cup. Argentina defeated France on penalty shots. Um, was this the greatest World Cup final ever? I don't know, Scott. I can't, I can't go for the superlatives because I'm not a World Cup scholar, really. I mean, who knows which one was the best one? 98 was phenomenal. Uh, and, and I think that this one was great. I mean, as, as it goes, this was one of the best tournaments I've ever seen um, of any sport of any because sport, of the excitement. Yeah. And so it's hard to compare them, but I can tell you this, there were many, many, many people who will not watch soccer for another four years and just savor what they saw here and yeah. then go back and watch it again or become new fans. It was that good. Yeah, sure was. Uh, a great ending. Uh, lots of great endings and beginnings in 2022. What stands out to you as we look back? Well, I think finishing the year, obviously, you've got to stick with the World Cup. You've got uh, Lionel Messi, who's done everything in this sport with Argentina except win the World Cup. Now he's got that. And, of course, you think about the, the breakout star of this tournament, the Golden Boot winner was Kylian Mbappe of France. Of course, he's already got a World Cup. He won it, <laughs> he yeah. won it four years ago. And so those two really stick out, obviously, throughout the year so many stories in tennis especially my sport just a generation of players retiring yeah. from you know from joe wilfried sanga del potro to petkovic to of course the you know the big ones at the end roger and serena really really uh tough to say goodbye to to that generation uh, very happy to see finally after the great long journey uh his rookie season as a player dusty baker yeah. 1968 with the atlanta braves wins the world series as a manager after winning it as a player with the dodgers back in uh, 1981 and then of course obviously there's the the one the one Christmas gift that I think everybody in the United States is happy for, or at least should be, which is Brittany Griner is home for, for Christmas, which is something that nobody thought was going to happen when she was sentenced in September. So as uh, a, a year she would like to forget ends, ends very kindly for her. Coming up later today, Buffalo Bears and below freezing temperatures. Oh, my. The Bills are playing at Soldier Field. <laughs> Uh, windshield's going to be below zero. Um, you know, you sh I, I believe authorities say don't take any unnecessary trips, but that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't apply to the Bears game, does it? Um, well, they are out there. I can tell you, Scott, they're out there playing. And and whenever I see these games, and obviously you can go back for all the classic games, whether you go back to the nineteen sixty seven ice bowl with the Dallas Cowboys and the Green Bay Packers and the oh. NFC title game, or you, you, you go to one of the, the, I think it was the Patriots and the, uh, and the Tennessee Titans played in one of these sub-zero games as well. And you go, and every time I see these games, I say to myself, I am not that big a fan. <laughs> I am not going to be the one to, to go out, out there, there and, yes, and watch it and, and, and below zero temperatures. And the tailgaters as well. Um, and then, of course, there's always going to be the crowd shot to the guy with no shirt on. I salute yeah. you, my friend, but I will be in the house. Uh, Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media, thanks so much for being with us, and I'll be right there with you. Take care. Thank you. And, of course, it's the season when you're likely to see decorations and lights strung between lampposts and trees in some downtowns. But in South Florida, you know, it could be an iguana up there, like in Lake Worth Beach, where lizards, iguanas, are known to hang around not just from trees but power lines. Iguanas have caused... 
15 outages there this year. We just have to know more. Ben Kerr is a spokesperson for the city of Lake Worth Beach and joins us now. Thanks for being with us. Of course, Scott. So how do the iguanas cause a power outage? Uh, so the main issue with iguanas is largely their size. Iguanas now, because we haven't had a large freeze, which normally would kill them off when they're smaller, in South Florida, anyone down here can tell you the iguanas are two plus feet. And because of that size, often what ends up happening is they'll be on one piece of equipment and then their mm -hmm. tail or their body will reach over and touch another part of the equipment. Electricity takes the easiest route and that route is through an iguana. There have been 15 power outages from iguanas this year? Yes, sir. Now that's actually down. So 2020, we had 28. 2021, we had 20. And then this year we've had yeah. 15 to date. Let me ask a question from the iguana's point of view. They don't want to cause a power outage. When they do, how do I ask this nicely? Uh, are they just iguana toast? Yes, sir. So the one that caused the outage that went famous was feeding uh, about 1,400 customers' homes. So if you hold on to an electric line that's feeding that many people, uh, you won't know anything about it. Oh, my gosh. Is there anything you can do to try and prevent it? I, I, I don't know, put cowlings around? Yes, and that's how the numbers are going down. Uh, there's a huge amount of mitigation efforts that are being tried at the moment. One of the issues with iguanas over, say, a squirrel, is iguanas are actually very adept climbers mm -hmm. and simply their size again. So they're able to get past a lot of the mitigation efforts. But that is what is reducing the numbers is... Uh, our staff are make a real effort to do anything they can to stop iguanas reaching the areas. But at the end of the day, um, a lot of it comes down to the, you know, the power lines and stuff running through the city are basically highways for animals like iguanas. And there's not a lot you can do when a tree reaches up there and the iguana can get onto it. Yeah. As I understand it, the, of course, temperatures are supposed to be colder this weekend, even just perhaps a little bit above freezing. Yes. Uh, that, well, that's going to cause some problems. Yeah, so one of my favorite Christmas traditions around this time of year is to put out notices to warn residents to be careful walking under trees because the iguanas, once they get cold, can fall out of the trees. Now, the issue is iguanas need about two weeks sustained cold temperatures mm. to actually kill them. You know, so they'll just wake back up and uh, some people have gotten a surprise when they've picked up an iguana for dinner and put it in their car and then the car heats the iguana up and a very confused iguana wakes up on the highway. So, yeah, so just getting cold enough is only part of the solution. It has to stay cold. Forgive me, this just passed. I, I, I can't help but notice. Did you say iguanas for dinner? Do you mean as a guest or as the entree? <laughs> uh, they make fairly decent eating. And, uh, yep, it's uh, not uncommon down here for them to be eaten. Oh, my. Well, happy holidays to you, <laughs> all of Lake Worth Beach and, and the iguanas, Mr. Kerr. Yes, thank you. Ben Kerr, spokesperson for the city of Lake Worth Beach, Florida. And uh, may the power be with you, sir. Thank you so much.
Living is a film that began as a story written by Tolstoy in 1886. It was refreshed and retold by the filmmaker Akira Kurosawa in 1952 in his movie, Ikiru. Now a new versions in theaters from the director Oliver Hermanus with the screenplay by the Nobel laureate Kazu Ishigura. But Bill Nye makes Living All His Own, starring as a senior bureaucrat who confronts an illness, the end, and life. Bill Nye, the star of Living, joins us from London. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Tell us about this man you play, Mr. Williams. He's a polite circumspect bureaucrat in the Public Works Department in post-war London. Neat piles of files around his desk. Is he the man he wanted to be? Almost certainly not. The central fact of his life is that he lost his wife very early on when they were young. And everything since then has kind of formed around that loss. He's also employed to work in an institution which is designed more or less to stop things from happening. It's an institution uh, devoted to procrastination, which must be pretty grueling, I think, to spend your life trying to prevent stuff from happening. He's also imprisoned, you might say, in the 1950s in Britain, uh, within the kind of complex set of manners and uh, social behavior that they required of themselves at the time, which was sort of recklessly restrained. Why did you want to play this character? He's so buttoned down. It was a great script, and I was impressed by the fact that Mr. Ishiguro had, uh, he'd long wanted to marry the Kurosawa movie with the kind of what's called Englishness. And I, I also, I am interested in that period, and I'm interested in that what's called Englishness, and I'm interested in that sort of, that degree of repression. It's fun to play, actually, and you have to express quite a lot with not very much, and it becomes kind of fascinating, and it's a bit of a game, you know, and it does make me laugh at how constrained they were. Tell us about how you uh, how you let, and you absolutely do so beautifully in this film, the full range of emotions, how you make them manifest in somebody who was so closed off. I don't know, really. I think it might be easier with a limited range of facial expressions or physical exhibition at your disposal rather than if you were allowed to really kind of let it out maybe because you know i'm familiar with that you know things haven't changed that much in england you know i mean there have been obviously enormous developments but we still require ourselves to be quite circumspect so i don't know quite i mean i just tried to imagine how that guy would operate in, in those circumstances yeah mr williams receives this very discouraging health diagnosis what does it set off in him there's that irritating thing that people always say, which no one can pull off, or at least I can't, which is to live every day as if it were your last. It just kind of triggers a panic that there is no meaning in his life whatsoever. Um, and he does this quite touching thing, which is he takes half of the, all the money that he owns, takes it out and takes it to a seaside town called Brighton, because he's heard of this thing called a good time. Yes. You know, he's never had one. But of course, hedonism turns out not to be the answer. And he searches elsewhere for meaning. But you know, it's that sequence in Brighton, which I love, that leads to what's become one of my most favorite film moments ever. I mean, right up there with singing La Marseillaise in Casablanca. 
and it's when you sing. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, well, thank you, thank you, thank you. My leaves were I the first of spring, thy flowers the summer's pride. There was no such a bonny tree in other That song is actually, it's kind of Mr. and Mrs. Ishiguro's song. Ishiguro's wife, Lorna, is actually Scottish, and that's an old Scottish song. I had enough pressure on me as it stood without knowing that. I'm quite pleased I didn't know that at the time. It's like at funerals where you're perfectly okay and you can kind of hold it all in until they ask you to sing and you fall apart, you know. Uh, there's something about the act of singing that just unlocks, it makes it impossible to not to express your emotions. Did you find yourself getting caught up in thoughts of mortality and, and what our lives can mean playing this role? I don't think I can think any more about death than I already do, because I think about it most of the time. You know, I mean, somebody asked me a while back, did I think about death? And I said, yeah, I think about it about 12 times a day. And that became the headline, you know, 12 times a day. That was quite a conservative estimate, actually. But it's not necessarily morbid. It's just like you buy a pair of shoes and you think, well, maybe. How many more pairs of shoes? You know, when you get to my age, it's like you look at the clock. I'm very fortunate that I have a job which gives me an opportunity to be involved in things that you hope have some meaning, you know, and might even, they're not going to change the world, but they might marginally inform the atmosphere and not be part of the problem so i don't have any uh, concerns about legacy or anything of that kind i've never it all sounds that sounds a bit too grand for me but i don't think it made me think about it any more than i already do mr nye you um god willing could be with us another 25 years well thank you i'm working on it my doctor says 86 Apparently, the numbers are 86. I'll take that. Your doctor sounds like he knows something. <laughs> what is he planning to when you turn 86? <laughs> I was a bit surprised. That's, apparently, that's what they do now. What do you think, a, um, particularly in these times, a film like this can put in the life of someone who sees it for, even if it's just for a few minutes or for an afternoon? This film has caught fire, and, and I've had, therefore, lots of messages on my phone, all of which the general theme is they hit the street and they want to do stuff. They're inspired. There's something about the dynamic involved that triggers something hopeful in people. And as somebody said to me last night, I expected to be unhappy by the end. And in fact, I was inspired. Mm. Bill Nye stars and just takes over the screen in the new film, Living. Thanks so much for being with us, Mr. Nye. Thank you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. 
and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock. It is 12 degrees in Boston. Sunny today, high around 22 with wind chill values as low as zero. Low around 14 tonight for Christmas tomorrow. Sunshine, highs in the upper 20s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Avangrid, a clean energy company committed to accelerating Massachusetts climate goals by investing in offshore wind and hydroelectric energy designed to power 2 million homes every day and help reduce carbon emissions by 7 million tons, believing that acting on climate change can't wait. Later today on This American Life, one year, for reasons too complicated to go into here, Alex Edelman's Orthodox Jewish parents decided to celebrate Christmas with him and his brother A.J. And at some point, A.J.'s standing on the couch, and he looked at me, and he just went, Santa came! And I went, Baruch Hashem! People celebrating first Christmases of all sorts later today. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.